is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I'm delighted to welcome Eliza Van Court to the show. Eliza will talk about how to advocate for yourself in the workplace, amongst many other things. Eliza, welcome. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, you are so welcome. I absolutely love your book. I devoured it. But before we go into that, you have this incredible life story that's really powerful and and difficult. And if you're willing, I would love for you to give us a glimpse into that and help us understand how it was the genesis for this incredible book. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Well, when I was younger, I had a mother who was quite devoted. And then at four and a half years old, she became paranoid schizophrenic and she lost custody of me. And it was very difficult for her because she loved me, but she was very ill and she ended up taking me illegally. It was considered an illegal kidnapping all the way from New York to California. And I went truck stop to truck stop to truck stop with her hitchhiking from New York to California and I, uh, the, I had a national APB out on me. My father was worried sick. And I learned, if you can imagine what that might have been like for a young woman, I learned very quickly that I had to be invisible to be safe. At least I felt I did. And that was the beginning of me making myself very, very small. And slowly, with the help of my community and wonderful women in my life, I started to grow into myself but there was still something that I just wasn't clicking. And then strangely enough, what really helped me figure out how to claim space and step into everyone, everything who I want, everyone I wanted to be, to be my true most realized self was getting hit by a car, (laughs) which seems very strange, but I was riding my bike and somebody was texting and driving And they ran into me. I got thrown onto the hood of their car, hit one side of my head, got thrown into the middle of a highway, hit the other side, was knocked unconscious, had a subdural hematoma. And when I woke up, not only was my memory shot, but I couldn't communicate well. So I had to build my communication brick by brick by brick. And that process of building my communication back was the final step for me in claiming space. And I broke down for myself as I watched people and researched, what is it that makes a woman really successful? What are the things that make her feel like she's living her full life? She's living her life unapologetically and bravely. And what I found was these five rubrics, and that's what my book is based on. So I always say to people, you know, every scar in our lives, it hurts when we get them. But that's what makes us really who we are. And it's part of our journey. You are the model of resiliency. Does that resonate with you? Well, I mean, I think I've had many advantages in my life. I had a really supportive community. I had a father who was very prominent in my town. So I got all the resources I needed. So I would say I certainly haven't had the hardest story. But I do think that, yes, I've faced a lot of challenges and For me, I really started to look at my life as, you know, it's really not about, are you going to fall? Because life will knock you down. It's about when I fall down, will I learn when I get up? And will I be brave enough to get up? And that sort of has been my approach to life in general. That's incredible. I I was so intrigued in the book about how you talk about 
how you observed people and, and really, like you said, brick by brick built your way back. And you talk about these five ways to break down communication. So walk mm-hmm. us through that, you know, how, what was this discovery like and what are those five areas? Yeah, well, I'm an extrovert. So, <laughs> so for me being quiet and not being able to communicate was tough. And so what I ended up doing was just really observing people. And eventually when I was able to tolerate a lot of sound, I would go to coffee shops and just watch people because I, I really had to learn how to do this. I'd been doing it intuitively and quite well, but I had to learn how to do it mindfully and, and consistently. And I, I still remember this moment sitting in this coffee shop and watching these two women and they were both reading a paper. They were both equally attractive. They both looked like they had the same level of education, roughly, if you were to hazard a guess, same age. And yet one woman, people kept coming up to, particularly three men came up to her and kind of bugged her. And she just couldn't seem to get them to leave her alone. And the other woman was sitting there completely left alone. And I watched their body language and I watched their behavior. And I thought, what is it? that makes this one woman be able to sit here in her power. And she's just exuding this energy that says, you know what, I'm here, leave me alone. I wanna read my paper in peace. And the other woman couldn't even get the people to leave. And that was the moment where I started breaking things down. And so what I did is I, and that was stage one. So the first thing I figured out was it's communication. So that's how you use your physicality and your voice. And that is huge. Even the slightest little adjustment in physicality and voice can blow open the way people treat you. But then I kind of dug deeper and I found the second thing was how do you treat other women and how are you in space when it comes to collaboration and your relationships? So, you know, claim space collaboratively and amplify each other because claiming space really isn't a solitary activity. And I found that there were two things. A lot of books focus on networking. And I found something quite different. The women who were really in their power, one, knew who to let into their network, you know, so they had a really wonderful network of women. But the other thing is they were very good at identifying who not to let into their network. Uh, People who I would call anti-mentors, they were really good at identifying their anti-mentors and making sure that their network and their collaborative space with other women was positive. And that was a huge, huge realization for me. So I have a whole chapter on anti-mentors and how to to deal with them in the book. the next one is how to never like neutralizing your kryptonite. You're going to find out I'm a huge nerd. So <laughs> how do you stop your patterns of self-sabotage, imposter syndrome, or are you really, are you susceptible to a toxic and dangerous relationship because that bleeds into everything personal and your professional life? And then how do you protect yourself? Uh, I have started noticing that most women, when they walk into a space, and it really does change whether you're a white woman or a woman of color, this scale. But we all walk in a room and we put ourselves instantly on a safety scale. The one side of it is total emotional safety and the other is total physical danger. Most of our lives, we do not live on these extremes, although for black women, sometimes they do deal with this extreme more than white women, obviously. But we work to navigate the middle. We're trying to push ourselves more towards emotional safety. The women who knew where to put themselves on that scale when they walked in the room and how to mitigate the situation so they pushed themselves more toward emotional safety did much better. So they knew how to deal with microaggressions, mansplaining, interruptions, all of those things. And then the final thing was committing to intersectionality. Uh, Unless you're claiming space for all women, I found you're not claiming space because 
Claiming space demands solidarity, it demands unity. So women who approach their work and their life with an open heart and an open mind, women who listened to, believed and advocated for other women, they did better. And as I always say, when we rise together, we rise so much higher. So the women who had friends of all races and women who didn't just hang out with straight women, women, you know, all of these different isms that we face, women who didn't care about that and had a really inclusive network, those women were rising so high. And so those were the five things that I found were sort of the magic formula. And when you look at all the women that we love, you know, you look at Oprah or, you know, you look at AOC or any, any of your heroes, whoever your yeah. hero may be, you know, these women do those things. And, and I think that's a huge part of why they find such success. Incredible. I am so eager to dive in deeper, but we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Okay, Eliza, my my wheels are turning. So I want to, <laughs> I want, I'm nerding out with you. I want to talk specifically, uh, you write about specific verbal and physical actions that women can take in different situations. Mm-hmm. So my request is for you to define the difference between high and low play behaviors and maybe give us an example so the audience can really understand this concept. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a wonderful researcher named Deborah Grinfield, and I have taken this from her research and sort of expanded on it. And she has these two things, they're high and low playing behavior. High playing behavior is how you take power or you maintain power. Low playing behavior is how you seed power or you show people that you are giving them your power. And most people think, well, you want to play high all the time, and and that is simply untrue. You want to play high some of the time, but sometimes you want to play low. So a high playing behavior, one of my favorite examples, is keeping your head still when you speak. If you've ever been caught by your parents doing something naughty and you remember how scared you were, I can almost guarantee that they were not moving their head. And if you want to really, really get someone to listen to you, don't move your head. Speaking in complete sentences, they can be short or long, kind of taking up a lot of space with your body and keeping your body very still, not blinking. All of these things are high playing. And in fact, one of the most high playing behaviors you can do is not look at someone when they're talking to you because you have better things to do. You don't need to look at them. So these are all high playing Low playing behavior is really making your body small, maybe tilting your head down, which I don't recommend, but that is one of them, giving up your space, seating it, leaning forward. And when you're looking at someone and you're making a point, you don't look right at them. You kind of dart your eyes around and it's very jerky hand movement. So if you've ever seen an argument and one person's really got their body open, it's very fluid and graceful, and the other person's jerking their hands toward their face, you don't need to know what the argument's about. You know who's in charge and you know who's winning <laughs> because the person who's jerking their hands toward their face is losing. And so one of, but I do want to stress this, and this is really important for issues of race. Uh, when you see somebody who's low playing and you're with them, and if you're a boss, they are saying to you, 
you are telling me with your body language or something you're saying that you expect me to be small for you. So it's a really good way to check in if you're a boss and see what people are thinking without them actually having to tell you. And so there are times you want to actually lower yourself to raise up another person. So for example, I mentor a lot of young women. I'm a cookhouse fellow at Cornell University. And before the pandemic, I had a group of young women who would come to my kitchen and they're all young women of color. So we have this automatic power differential in society. I'm older, I'm white, it's my home. They're young women of color, they're younger, they're students. So when they come in, I'm not gonna look at them unmoving with you know, not smiling, not moving my head and say, so I'm really excited to see you, tell me how I can support you you know, and, and scare them, right? I'm going to actually smile at them, which is also low playing and kind of look around and say, hey, you know, I'm really glad you're here and I'd love to help you in any way and get that, I'm gonna lower myself to raise them up. So there are times you really wanna take power and there are times I can give you examples of that if you'd like, I have a funny story or, but there are also times you really wanna seed power because you want to gain social capital by lowering yourself by raising another human being. Oh, I love that seeding power. Okay, so here we are in the, the virtual new normal, right? Everybody's Zooming or WebExing mm -hmm. or pick a platform. How does this play out on, on video camera? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting. One thing that you can really do to claim a lot of space if you want to high play is if someone says something you don't like, because silence is also a power play. Women tend to fear silence because we get interrupted a lot. So we try to avoid silence by using filler words and sounds, but silence is a real power move. So if someone says something you don't like, you can lean into the camera, which then makes you or take up a lot more space physically, and it feels like you're getting in someone's space. Don't say anything, but make sure you're maintaining eye contact with the camera. Take a pause and then say something, and I can promise you, you will make an impact. So that is one way to really claim space if you feel like someone's taking it. But in general, actually, this is the simplest thing in the world, and a lot of people aren't doing it, but one of the best ways to claim space right now is to make sure you're seen. And I know it sounds like a little thing, but I tell every woman I work with, please get a ring light. Yeah. Because if we're in the dark, talk about being invisible, right? We're making ourselves not seen. So the more you can be seen in every way, the more power you'll have. Beautiful. That virtual impression matters. So I, I just loved so many of the very specific action steps that you had in your book. And I want you to, to share with our global audience. You talk about shutting down the interrupters, the mansplainers, and the anti-mentors <laughs> without breaking a sweat. So tell, tell us more. I love this. <laughs> So interruption is actually one of my favorites. And whenever I give talks, this is the thing that I often get feedback from because people will contact me and say, I didn't think it was going to work, but it's going to work. So it worked totally and it was great. So I, again, I'm going back to my nerdy self, but there are two ways to approach interruptions. One is that you simply look at the person and say, you interrupted me and I don't like it. Please stop. But the problem with that, unfortunately, is then the entire conversation suddenly becomes about the interruption itself. <laughs> so then you have to defend the fact that you don't like being interrupted. So if you, and that's okay, if that's where you want to go. But if you don't want to do that, if you just want to shut down the interruption while building allyship around you, this is how you do it. The first thing, and it's a four-step process, the first thing is you just raise your voice and keep talking. And sometimes that works. You just keep talking. The second thing is you put one hand out and you do what Kamala Harris did, which was textbook, which you just smile, which she did, 
and you say, excuse me, I'm speaking. And then you keep talking. So she didn't wait, right, for him to say. She said, excuse me, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Thank you. Okay. And then she just kept going. So that is a really good thing. And the reason you want to put your hand up like she did is that it signifies to everyone, hey, guys, look, I'm being interrupted. So you're starting to build allyship with people around you saying, okay, she was very polite there. And she put her hand up. Hmm. And, and they didn't stop. Then if they do it again, you can put your hand up again and you can be a little firmer with them. So you can say, you know, I'd like to finish and not smile quite so much, maybe a little smile. But the final thing you do, and by this time, usually it doesn't even happen because most of the time what happens at that point is an ally has jumped in because you've signaled to everyone, hey guys, look, look what's happening. I put my finger up, I put my hand up, I put, you know, then you use two hands. Then you put two hands up and you drop your smile and you say, let me finish. And by then you've built the social capital that nobody thinks you're, they can't use those tropes that you use on women. Oh, she's aggressive. She's this because you've tried to be quote nice three times and it hasn't worked. And so when you do that, usually someone by then has jumped in and said, Hey, 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 you've interrupted her like three times now. So that's where that physical signaling is really important. Oh, I love that. And it just gave me chills thinking of, of Kamala during the debate, right? It was textbook. You're right. It was a special moment. <laughs> I was bombarded by clients at that moment. I bet you were. I bet you were. Your phone probably, <laughs> yeah, probably erupted. So Eliza, you talk also in the book about neutralizing your, you just said it, your emotional kryptonite, self-sabotage. Mm -hmm. And goodness knows every woman and, and many men listening are probably relating to imposter syndrome. So how do we neutralize mm -hmm. that? That's a really interesting exercise. And I want to shout out to my friend. She is a therapist. Her name is Kim Munson Burke. I don't want to take credit for this. Um, she was telling me she uses this with trauma patients. And she was telling me about how effective it is. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to steal this. <laughs> so I said, hey, could, I'm going to use this for, do you think I can use it for someone who doesn't have trauma? And she said, yeah, you can use it for anybody. So what Kim explained is that we all have that little kid in us a time in our lives where we were most traumatized. And it could be just small trauma, like middle school's horrible, right? It just could be like that everyday thing that we all can't stand. It could be really hardcore trauma, like what I experienced. But we all have that age where we really thought that was really hard. And when we're under stress, that's the person who comes out. And I said to Kim, does this mean we all have multiple personality disorder? She said, no, no, no. We all do have that person in us. And if you if you kind of doubt that, think about that moment where you say, wow, whenever I talk to that person, they make me feel like a kid. Or God, I feel like a little helpless teenager whenever I talk to that person. That is that person coming out. So she gave me this exercise, which actually put a lot of my business, I, I pretty much put me out of business to a certain extent because it's so powerful that about 80% of my clients hear it and they never need to work with me again. Um, and this, and it sounds a little weird, but I would just suggest everyone try it before judging. So what you do is you picture yourself at the age where you felt most vulnerable. And then you picture yourself walking onto a ship and there is, you know, they have the ship with those big spokes, the wheels, and you picture your little self driving the ship. And then your adult self walks over to that little person and there's a chair next to the, uh, the place where she's or he is steering. And you say, I know you're really scared right now. And you should be scared because you're not qualified to drive this ship. But I am. So I'm going to have you sit down. You're fine. And I'm going to drive the ship because that's why I'm here, because I'm qualified and I can do it. And then you take the ship. 
you hold on to the wheel and you look forward. And when you really feel like your adult self is in charge, you start to drive. And when I do this with people, it's transformative because so much of the time, our adult selves know that we're supposed to be there. It's that little scared kid in us who thinks, I'm really not supposed to be here. And that is the person, and that's why we're nervous. But if the adult self really walks in the room and takes over, we're able to do anything because we're qualified or else we wouldn't be there in the first place. Wow, that is a gorgeous example. I love that. That is really powerful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So yeah, it's beautiful. Eliza, something that resonated with me is your uh, nod to the scarcity myth. You say, look, there's enough room Mm -hmm. for every woman. Let's not fall for this it girl, right? You've got to be the the person. Talk more about that. You know, that that is such an important theme. Uh, Brene Brown talks about scarcity. So many other thought leaders like you are talking about it. It's real. So, so Let's, let's yes. wrap up and, and talk about that because I think it's incredibly important and poignant. Yeah. Well, I started really developing this when I noticed that when my clients would say they were having a hard time with another woman, it was a woman who was a client, um, It almost every time that person looked like them, maybe even was a little older than them. It was, it was almost bizarre, the predictive power. So I would say to my client, you know, I had a, a the, the time it really clicked, I had this young woman. Um, this older woman who came in, she was Asian, she was in her 40s, not older, but older than the other person. And a, and she was a partner in the law firm. And they brought in another young woman. And she said, this woman is just on me all the time. I don't understand. And I said, well, I have a weird question, but is she younger than you? And is she Asian? And she said, how could you possibly know that? And I said, well, no, it's not that I'm <laughs> amazing. It's that what happens is if power is a triangle, at the top of the triangle, historically, there have been white men there. And so there was always this tokenized person at the top. And that person felt like, wow, if anyone comes up, I got to go. And so when the people are coming up, they feel like they have to push the other person out, the up and comer. And the person who is in the power position feels like they have to keep everyone out. And it's this real historic memory that is based in truth but no longer really as relevant. I mean, there of course, we still do have this to a certain extent, but nothing compared to where this originated from. And so I remember saying to this particular woman, you know, why don't you sit her down and say, listen, we're not getting along well. We are the only two Asian women here. Let's support each other. Let's see if, and she, she didn't want to because she was so mad, but then it escalated and finally she did. They didn't leave as friends, but they decided they were gonna just try to really support each other. And within two years, they were recruiting more women into the firm wow. and they had become really tight. And so I think it's so important for us as women to understand that they're really what happens is if we don't do that, the power structure is linking arms, hiring each other, drinking beer and promoting each other. <laughs> and so, you know, if we have a power structure out there that's doing that and we're fighting amongst ourselves, how are we ever going to rise So it's so important for us to let go of that feeling of scarcity and instead go through this feeling of, you know, as I say in the book, when we rise together, we rise so much higher. And I think that's just for me, that's one of my missions in life is to make sure that all of us support each other because everyone, men, women, doesn't matter your race, we all benefit when all of the ideas are in the marketplace, all of us. Eliza, I've learned so much from you today. I can't thank you enough. What a joy to have you on the show. Let me tell our global audience the name of your book so they can jump right online and and buy it. It's called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, 
stand tall, raise your voice, be heard. And it's available on Amazon and major book retailers. And I am thrilled for you and just so honored and and grateful that you joined me on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was lovely. I really appreciate it. And I love your show. Well, thanks. Thanks. And to all our listeners, if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review. And here's why. When you leave a review, it helps new listeners find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.